Welcome, my name is Rob. Um, I teach at the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies and this session is called Bring Extra Batteries and what we're going to do is talk about all the things or at least many of the things you should be thinking about before you go out into the field and do a radio story. It'd be just kind of a checklist of things for you to think about. I'm kind of worried about it though. I'm a little bit worried about saddling people with a whole bunch of things to think about because there's a kind of fear that can happen with people who have, um, who've never done this before and they're gonna go do radio stories. And so if Rob says, here's all the things you need to be thinking about, it might paralyze you so that you'll never do radio, okay? Don't let that get to you. These are just some things to help guide you. What I really hope you leave with today is like the notion that you should continue to ride the spark and the fire that is in your belly that wants to do radio and don't let this little checklist of things we're gonna go through again, paralyze you, freeze you, all right? It's just kind of a guideline. What I found is that when people first start and they wanna do a radio story, this is what they do with their microphone, you ready? They spin it around in a circle and they record everything and they don't really know what to do with all the tape that they've collected. So what I'm gonna help with today a little bit is to figure out, well, actually, which direction should you be pointing the microphone? Who should you be talking to? And how can you focus yourself and think in terms of telling a story before you actually head in the field and spin around 360 degrees 17 times and collect 93 hours of tape and not have a clue as to what to do with it? So that's the hope for today. I don't know everything. In fact, that's probably the first words I speak when I talk to students at SALT where I teach. And my sense is that the people in the room, whether it's a class at SALT or in this room right now, probably collectively we, need, we know everything. So I'm really hoping that to some extent we can make this as participatory as possible and really pitch in and um, discuss the process of you know, thinking about a story before you go out into the field. What I want to do is start by doing some brainstorming. What's good radio? What's a good radio piece have? Anybody? Good sound. Good sound. So does that mean quality recording? Yeah. Good sound. What else? It captures your attention. How so? It makes you want to listen more. Yeah. Captures attention. Are you talking with the sound, or who said that? I did. You did. You're talking about with the sound or with the story itself? Either one of those. Yeah. Good sound captures attention. What else? Makes you care. Ah, makes you care. What do you mean by that? Um, you have some kind of investment in the story that you're listening to and in the characters of the story itself. Ah, good. Yes, sir. Stands out from one on either side Stands out. How does it stand out? What are the things that it needs in order for it to stand out? Depends on what's either side of it. <laughs> I mean, if you take a, I mean, a, a terrific story stuck in the middle of somebody listening to something else, just be a judge. You're listening to something and there's some pattern that's set up and then something happens that calls your attention and then and you go on to something else. But I, don't, I don't think you can define it apart from what you're already listening to or thinking before you hear this. So okay. 
What else? Yeah. It's sort of spontaneous, or it sort of reflects the spontaneous quality of finding something out. How about surprise, too? Would you say that as well? Okay. I was looking for that one. Good. What else? I saw a hand. Yeah. So it's simple, but not stupid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah? Mm -hmm. it's simple, but it's not stupid. It, it, in its simplicity, in its focus, it helps tell about large things, right? Is that fair? Succinct. Succinct, yeah. Keep going. Sure. Do you want to feel active? You know, you're seeing rules, you know, serving as a catalyst for imagination. And are you talking about active, what people call active tape? Have you heard that phrase before? It, active tape is tape where, in short, people are moving through space and time. It's like a scene, an action is unfolding in real time that the listener hears. I was referring more to just you're placing it in context of your own life and it's helping you imagine things that you've seen or it's helping you go into your head. Ah, okay. Is it visual then, you mean? Visual, I guess. OK, active and visual. Old school way to describe radio is that it's theater of the mind. Hopefully not theater of the mindless. But, yeah, blue. Well, make it a perspective. New perspective. New perspective. A journalist might say angle. Let's not get fancy. New perspective. Perspective. What about sound rich? Is that a component? Is that useful? Yeah. yeah. Sound rich. How about an interesting character? I think we got at that maybe a little bit. Maybe we didn't. It's an interesting character. Anything else? Yeah, shoot. Um, the way that it's edited. So um, like the storyline, how it's edited, how the sounds all play in together really depends on if the topic, if the radio piece is successful or not. You have an example? Um, not really, just, it just depends on, so like if you have this great story and all these great sound bites, but the editing isn't interesting, it's, it's dull, it's not really edited well, there's a lot of, um, like there's either too much narration or too much story from the interview then that really takes away from the topic itself. Yeah, I agree. In my notes, I have using the medium artfully. How about that? Also in my notes, I have something that Jay Allison recently said on Fresh Air. Jay Allison's a producer from Cape Cod. He runs transom.org. Um, Jay said that he likes radio that causes you to look at your radio. So you hear something and you, you turn to your radio. Have you had that experience? <laughs> yeah. Anything else that we should have on that list? Surprising. Oh, what about intimate? Let's play something and see if it meets this test. This is about two minutes long. In Florida, there's sugarcane fields. Every year, they burn the sugarcane fields in order to fertilize the fields. Rabbits run out of the sugarcane fields because, you know, they're on fire. And if you were a rabbit, you'd do that too. Five, four, three, two, one. They lit it. They just lit it. 
They lit it, ladies and gentlemen, and we're off to catch some rabbits. My name is Willie Young. I'm 13 years old. Do you hear the fire? It smells good. It sounds good. The intensity of the smoke just burning my eyes. It feels good. When I first started, I went with my cousin. He taught me how to catch rabbits. And he taught me how to hit them with a stick. I hit them with the cane. They started jumping. I hit them again. And they just stay on the floor. And they can't move no more. And then eventually they die. Give me the stick. Here with me today is my friend Punky. Hit him, Punky. And if it were for him, it, this wouldn't have been possible. Because, you know, you'll probably need a buddy to help you catch rabbits. Good job. So how much you got? Well, we did pretty good. We got about, I think, 11 rabbits. Damn, I can't believe I let one rabbit get away. Lucky rabbit. Feel good. Hot, fire even burning my eyes. You know, but I had to do it. Ooh, hell, he, he burned up a little too. Only thing that is on my mind when I be out there is catching rabbits. Not else but catch your rabbits. Cause you know I gotta feed my family. The fire fades out. What'd you guys think of that? Love the last line. Love the last line? Yeah, what about it? Just you thought they're out there playing. It's gotta be my family. Yeah, he's 13. He's yeah. providing. Yeah. 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 You don't know why he's doing them at the beginning. You think maybe it's just for fun. Yep. Yeah. It's two minutes. Pretty powerful, huh? Is it visual? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can you smell it? <laughs> we didn't put smell up on our list of good items, but maybe we should have. Did it have conflict? Yeah, what kind? For the rabbits. For the rabbits, yeah. I think I'm for the listener, like, yeah. If you like something on it's not a reporter's slow news day. It's just to go out and light something on fire, right? Yeah, so instant conflict. It's a story. Yep. What happens if you take the last sentence out? Yeah, what is it then? Some kids playing. Yeah. Is it as powerful? No? Can you think why? Yeah. I mean, I think without it, it's still a visual, visual piece that takes you somewhere, but it's more nostalgic in a way. Yeah. But it also opens up a whole new thought process of, gosh, why does he have to feed his family with these rabbits that he's battered? I mean, it, you know, it's just, it, it, it's, a, it's kind of a cliffhanger. That's where the tension lines, I think, is not so much in the fire, but in the end, becomes complicated all of a sudden. Yeah. You guys are good. Yeah, you can start to imagine how they cook the rabbit. Like, it just takes you on a different... Like, oh, yeah, that, yeah. How to take home and kind of, like, take off the fur and right. just take right. it right. a different... Yeah. <laughs> um, instead of having any resolution, it kind of starts a whole... You're like, oh, wait, don't end what you do. It's just starting at that point. Right, it seems like the opening sequence, the opening chapter in something that should be much longer. Excellent. Man, you guys, were you guys here yesterday? <laughs> um, well, a couple things I want to say about this. One is, if you take that last sentence out, I don't think it's any longer a story. And so, by story, oh, I forgot to put who comes up with this. I'll tell you anyway. Um, by story, I mean this. 
A story consists of a sequence of actions that occur when a sympathetic character, someone we like, encounters a complicating situation, conflict maybe, a problem, a situation. Um, they encounter this that, uh, that they, they uh, confront and that they solve. This is an old school way of thinking about stories, but it works. I mean, at, at the heart is what stories are. And I think if you take out that last sentence, you don't have a story, you have a radio piece, and it might be a good radio piece, and it'll probably give us a lot of the things that we want from a radio piece, and we'd probably listen to it, but I'm not sure it goes to the next level, which is what you wanna strive for, I think, in a radio story when you're producing a story. So I bring this up because what we're gonna talk about today, as I said, was the things you need to think about before you head out into the field to do a story or a radio piece. All right. So a lot of times we start off with a really great idea or we have a really great character or there's a situation that we're aware of, but it isn't necessarily quite a story at that point. And let me give you a couple examples. Um, for those of you who came in late, I teach at a place called Salt in Portland, Maine. And this semester, um, here are a couple of the stories that people are working on. And I hope that this illustration gives you an idea of the difference between an idea and a story. So <laughs> oftentimes a, an idea will start with, so there's this guy, right? Have you heard that before? Yeah, so there's this guy who has a crazy race car covered with religious symbols. So a student went to a racetrack, saw this car that is completely covered with religious symbols from, from bumper to bumper. And she said, what the hell is that? Or maybe not hell, but you know, what the heck is that, right? And so of course you would gravitate toward that particular racer out of all the other ones. But it's not necessarily a story, it's a potential interesting character and a possible idea. As she started to do her work and do interviews, she kind of started to find the story. And this is sort of where it's headed, at least at this point in the semester. Against his family's wishes, Mike St. Germain races to win and for God. He's nearing his 100th trophy, but the bleacher seats reserved for his family remain empty. Now we have that. So before, we have cool dude in a race car who goes round and round and round and has religious symbols on his car, and that could be kind of fun to listen to that and just to hear who this guy is and hang out with him. But when we bring in some complications with regard to his family and how they feel about it, because they think it's really dangerous, his religious beliefs, I'm telling you more than that's in these sentences, his religious beliefs are actually overriding, no pun intended, um, uh, his, family's, you know, um, his family's concerns. And of course, then there's the 100th trophy. He's at his 99th now. Is he going to get his 100th trophy? So there's the suspense element. So anyway, then you have a story. Here's another one. Um, do you guys know what flat daddies are? Have you heard that before? Um, this company in Maine, of course, has come up with this idea where you can buy a life-size picture of your husband or son or family member that's in Iraq. And they're calling them flat daddies, because I think, generally speaking, they're, they're fathers, right? Well, here's an idea. Mother with a son in Iraq. Or, put another way, how are families of soldiers in Iraq managing? All right, there's an idea but it's not quite a story. Here's the story. Marjorie is distraught over her youngest son's deployment in Iraq. She purchases a flat daddy, I guess it would be a flat son in this particular case, right? Um, a life-size image of her son and takes him nearly everywhere she goes to help address her fears and to make a statement. 
Now we have that. Now we have that. So, and she does that, by the way. She takes this big cutout, it's actually from like the waist up, brings him out to the car, puts him in the car seat, the passenger seat, straps him in. There's the sound, buckle, right? And then we'll drive to the post office, for instance, with him in the side seat, and she talks to him. What's the weather like? What's the family been doing? What it is she's bringing to the post office? And she gets out of the car, unbuckles him, and brings him into the post office with her, with her boxes of stuff for soldiers in Iraq, as well as this, you know, post at breakfast every morning. There's her son. Pretty amazing. And she's not, you know, she's not out of her mind. She's just a really worried mom, as you might expect her to be. But anyway, there's a story. Um, someone in the last session asked how she found that. It was just a picture in the newspaper. So here's the story in the newspaper about um, Maine soldiers in Iraq. And then there's this picture that really didn't seem to have anything to do with the story at all. And it named her, Marjorie, I don't remember her last name, who lives in Mexico, Maine. There's a Mexico, Maine. Um, and uh, so the student just moved right toward that. So I bring this up because if you see an idea or an interesting character, it's really important, I think, to begin thinking at first, well, what might the story be? How can I take it to this level? Oftentimes, you don't know until you get there and you start doing interviews with people and things start to reveal themselves. But I really think that before you leave the house or the studio or wherever it is you start from to go do your story, you need to be thinking about that. Because thinking about that will help prompt you, what kinds of questions do I need to ask? Where, who do I need to talk to? I really find that when people are starting out and doing radio, there's this tendency to do this. Ready? Right? And you just record everything because everything seems important. And what happens with that is you come back with a pile of tape that you don't really know what to do with. Oh my god, I got 53,000 hours of tape and I have a four minute radio piece to tell? Holy Toledo, what am I going to do? If you start to plan and think some things out beforehand, yeah, you still might do some of that, right? But you may do a little bit less of it. So having, thinking about what the story might be helps to ground you a little bit and focus your attention on things so you're not recording everything. Here's another thing that helps. If I start talking too fast, will you please throw things at me and say, Rob, dude, you're talking too fast? A focus sentence is really helpful. What was it in 10th grade English class that they called that? A, th a theme statement or a, what was that? I can't remember. A thesis, yeah, there we go, a thesis statement, I should know that. Um, a focus sentence. Not sentences, no paragraphs, a focus sentence. And typically a focus sentence is someone does something because. It's at its root. Someone does something because. So let me give you some examples. These are also from salt pieces from the past. One, this one's from the past. Okay. Mel Claridge, this is an actual dude. Mel, oops. Fine, thanks. Mel Claridge looks for work because he's unemployed. Not particularly interesting, but at the root of the story that this student told was this guy, Mel Claridge, who was unemployed and needed to find work. All right? It's a story, not particularly interesting at this point because there's lots of people who are unemployed and looking for work, but at its root, that's what the story was about. Having that kind of thing in mind while you are gathering tape helps to focus you. 
And when you've gathered all this tape and you're bringing it back and you're going, oh my God, what am I supposed to do with this, all this tape? Oh, my focus sentence is that this is a story about a guy who's unemployed looking for work. All right. As you find more information, though, you can make that focus sentence a lot more interesting. Ready? In challenging economic times, context, Mel Claridge, a blind vocational counselor. So he's blind. So he has a kind of character complication, if you will. Um, and he's a vocational counselor, so we have a little bit of irony that this guy's out of work trying to find work, yet that used to be what his job was, was to help people find work, right? And a father of two looks for work. So in challenging economic times, Mel Claridge, a blind vocational counselor and father of two, looks for work, all right? You add in some of the details, and it becomes a richer, more three-dimensional story, but it becomes an anchor to hold you in place because you will see many things, <laughs> and you'll get a lot of great tape, and you can get kind of lost in all the tape and not know where the story went and what to do with all the tape. But a focus sentence can really, really help you out. As you find more information, I should back up. You write the focus sentence in a pencil. And as you find more information, you replace things. Oh, wait a minute. The economic times really aren't that challenging. I found that out. You know, actually, things are pretty good. I'm making that up. And then so you would take that out and you try to find another context for that. Is that making any sense at all? Is that a useful thing that might be helpful? You're laughing. It's not useful at the least? Yeah, okay. You'd say if it wasn't? All right. I want to do one other thing, and then I really want to open this up for some more dialogue like we had at the beginning. Another, th go, go, go. Back to that last thing. Yep. I need a minute to think about it. What sure. your point in that is um, it keeps you focused when you're actually going and getting out material and asking questions. And yeah, absolutely. To that that as opposed to just randomly getting the whole world. Yeah, but you're right, so it keeps you focused. And again, I find that there's a tendency for people who are doing this just for the first time to not be particularly focused. It's just like they're infant in all directions. And that's why you say it's your anchor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But here's the problem, is that what can happen is, is that what you think the story might be about, it isn't. And then you end up getting married to this, and then you're trying to fit stuff into that little box that you've created. There's the danger. I don't know how to tell you to be flexible and open-minded. <laughs> Hopefully your parents helped you with that, you know? Um, but it really requires both. You have to use both the left brain and the right brain, the one part of the brain that holds that in place and keeps you focused, and the other one that says, I'm interested in all things, and I am a very curious human being, and I need to make sure I'm not missing things. There's the tightrope walk. And there's the danger in all the things I'm about to tell you, you know, this, this session is that they can box you in and you miss the point. There it is. It goes right by you because you were so worried about filling in the blanks of your focus sentence. So it requires going both ways. Yep. In the rabbit piece, we didn't find out the because to the last line. Mm. What happens if that's early? Excellent question. That's a really great structural question. So the question is, if you take the piece, uh, the rabbit whacking piece, which was produced by Matt Ozug, who was a SALT graduate who now works for Sound Portraits and StoryCorps in New York City. Um, if you take out the, I have to do it because I have to feed my family, and you put that at the beginning, what's that do to the story? You don't need to listen anymore. You know everything you're gonna learn. Yeah. It takes away the surprise. I mean, I think I would still listen, but it doesn't, because it's still compelling a 13-year-old kid is doing this. Yeah. But it takes away, you don't go on an emotional ride, whereas this way you do. Yep. Except do you hear those kids throughout in a different way? Yeah, it contextualizes in a different way. Yeah. 
That's the entire piece it doesn't go on. That's the entire piece. So this is great. It's going to help us lead into the next segment that I want to talk about. Where would you go next in that piece? So I'll, and let me rephrase that question. So think of that as the beginning of a radio piece. Think of it as a scene. And a scene in a radio piece or a movie, but a scene in a radio piece has character or characters, has action, it has um, a primary idea. Those are the basic elements of a scene. Where would the next scene go? Well, who would be in it? What would be happening? And what would we come to understand? His family cooking the rabbit. So you'd go home, see him probably in the kitchen, right? And they're cooking the rabbit. Somebody was talking about preparing the rabbit earlier. Yeah. We might do the prep, but sure, cooking the rabbit. And why? Why would what would what would that allow us to talk about? It's very visceral in a way. You know, it's not like you're buying it at the store, so it's the process, the ritual of feeding the family. Yeah. But then also maybe a discussion about why the family depends on the rabbit for food. Okay. You'd meet the mom, you'd meet the other yeah. characters. And then it could go many ways. Then it's like it's the economy of that particular city based around rabbit. Like you can go into that. Based around rabbit? <laughs> there's the auto industry, you know, there's fishing and agriculture, and then there's rabbit. Yeah, I know. Yep. That's great. And then also, I mean, part of it was just so, like, who survives on rabbits they catch in this day and age of this country? Yeah. Who are these people? Where do they live? And it's just fascinating. Yeah. Notice that we got to those larger contextual issues like third. The hunt, the preparation, context. It's a slightly off subject, but frequently a radio story will start with action, so the hunt, the preparation, and then you go to background, and then the story picks up again, development, and then somewhere along the line there's conclusion. Action, background, development, conclusion, A, B, D, C. Just a thoughtlet for you. But it's a thoughtlet that helps and fits into what we're talking about because what I think you need to do before you go in the field to do a story is do this kind of thinking. Think about how you want to tell your story in scenes. What would the locations be? Who would the characters be? What are the big ideas that I want to flesh out in this story? And plot it out. And that's what we're going to do right now. We do a good time. At SALT, we use these forms that we stole from NPR. This step is a good idea, right? Abby Hoffman had a book, right? Steal with NPR form. <laughs> That's a joke for the old people. Um, what we do at SALT is we plot out what we think our story is going to be about. We plot out what we think the story is going to be about. And we do it in pencil. All right, so here's scene one. And the elements of scene one would be the idea, the characters, the setting, and the action. I think I left out setting before, like where are we, what's the place look like, that sort of thing. Here's scene two, scene three, and you just plot it out how you think maybe your story could be told. It gives you a quick to-do list. So if we're going to prep with the rabbit, we know that we need to be there with our microphone, you know, sitting down while they put the rabbit on a who knows what, gets the knife out, and they start opening the rabbit up and taking the skin off of it, right? I want my mic like right there. You know, while that's happening. I need to think about that in advance and plot it out in pencil. 
maybe they don't prep the rabbit. Maybe they take the rabbit to a rabbit prepping place, you know, and so it's a different thing. But then you would find that out and you would put that in here and change. I don't think that there's rabbit. What would that be? Like, <laughs> well, like Roger and me, that lady dressed the rabbits for people to eat. Yeah. That was one of the first things. He said, well, I'm interested in rabbits. And he said, as a pet or meat. Yeah. And she would dress the rabbits and then sell them that. That's right. That's right. Well, <laughs> I hadn't thought of that in a long time. So anyway, we plot these things out, and then, you know, we change it as we find things. But here comes the, the caveat is that you end up getting married to this, and you start filling in the blanks that you think you're supposed to go get, and other stuff happens, and you miss it. So there's that, here's what I think my story is and how I want to tell it. Oops, here's reality. Here's the story. Oops, here's reality. And it's just that tightrope. I guess I would walk it like that if I was on a tightrope. But Steve. It seems like... Uh this assumes that you have a lot of opportunities to go back to your subject after maybe you've gone out and done the first fact-finding and then you come back and do this and then go out again. Um, so this, this assumes sort of a long period of time and repeated interviews, right? Yeah, it does. And I'm assuming that people are at Third Coast because they're interested in documentary work, and which implies long-term commitment to a story. So I have that built in. But Someone doing a 24 or 48-hour turnaround story can still use this concept. I got this from Andrea DeLeon, who is the Nor Northeast Bureau Chief for NPR. And they're cranking out stories, you know, 50 times a day. And she tries, to the best of their ability, to get people to think in terms of this. And so, yeah, deadline journalists can still use this as an option. But, yeah, they don't go back several times like, you know, like a documentarian would. So let's use this, all right? And let's listen to a piece, and let's fill in the blanks based on what the piece is. And if you guys could just take one and pass it around um, <clears throat> so that we can come to understand perhaps a little bit better scenes and how they might work. And so how you can use the idea of scenes and the pieces that you're hoping to produce. And what we're going to listen to is a piece by Joe Richmond. Did anyone see Joe Richmond's presentation yesterday? That guy's a genius, huh? And Joe runs Radio Diaries. He's the king of um, non-narrated radio pieces, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, several years ago, maybe 10 years at this point, he had a series of pieces called Teen Diaries, where he gave tape decks to teenagers and they documented their lives. And this is one of those stories. And so what I'm gonna do is we're gonna play this and at the end of the first scene, or maybe the second scene, we'll stop it and just talk about what happened and what the components were and see how your filling in of the blanks matched with everybody else's. And then we'll move on to the second scene and so on. Sound like a plan? All right. Tourette's syndrome is a neurological disorder that causes involuntary tics, such as sudden movements and verbal outbursts. According to the National Institutes of Health, an estimated 100,000 Americans have the condition. Josh Cutler is 16 years old and lives in New York City. As part of our series of teenage diaries, Josh was given a tape recorder to document his life with Tourette's syndrome. This is his story. I'm getting ready for school right now. Just got out of the shower and got dressed. And now I'm getting ready to heat up my usual TV dinner that I have for breakfast. I think I'll have a spaghetti bolognese. Oh, let me do the introduction now. Hi, my name is Josh, and I'm 16 years old, and I live in Manhattan in New York City. My mom is a theater professor, and my dad's a lawyer. Pop it in the microwave here. 
Um, <clears throat> if you saw me on the street, you wouldn't notice anything different about me. I mean, I look just like a normal person, except for after a while, you'd realize I'm, I don't act much like a normal person. <clears throat> I have Tourette's syndrome. It's a neurological disorder that causes <clears throat> involuntary tics. <clears throat> it feels like there's a big balloon inside my stomach. Like the balloon keeps growing bigger and bigger. Like every second extra that I, the tick stays inside, it feels like somebody blows up the balloon another, another notch until I let it out. <coughs> Yesterday I saw a show. It was more of Maury Povich about people with Tourette's. There was this one big fat kid from Houston named Phil or something like that. And the show was really ridiculous because Maury Povich was just going on about how beautiful the kids were and everything. And talk show hosts always tell about how beautiful the guests are, especially when they're horrendously ugly or, or obese. Yeah. It's my radio show, thank you. Sorry about that. So is my mom. You're not listening at the door, are you? Okay. Prank calls. I make a lot of prank calls. <clears throat> Hello? Hello? Yeah, I want to go to school. You do? Yeah, in September. Oh, you do? Yeah. Yeah, you talk to my daddy. Alright, hold on. Hold on. Hello? Hello? Hi, hi there, hi. Hi. Yeah. Um, I'm Billy's father. Yeah, I was, um, but listen, um, Billy is kind of an emotionally disturbed child, so would we be able to cope with that? Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I can send you the material. Yes, yes. Give me the name and address, and I'll mail you the information. Right, my name is Wilton. I make a lot of prank calls. Yes, yes. My mom thinks that it's because since I've experienced so much pain that I like to inflict it on others, it's not true at all. Yes, yes. I just do it for, because it's fun. Okay, bye. Hook, line, and sinker. Okay, there's the end of one section. Do you think that's one scene or two scenes? So a scene has a big idea, has a setting, has a main character or characters, has some action. Is that one scene or two scenes? Two, two. two. Breakfast and prank call. I'm not sure there's a wrong answer to be honest with you. Um, yeah, okay, so two scenes we'll say. Who's in it, who's the main character? Yeah, Josh. What's the action? Yeah, and the cooking of breakfast, right? Okay, and the big question, what's the main idea? What happens? What's being communicated to us? All right, so it's got a thread. All right, so let's back out of the scene conversation for just a second. One of the things you might want to think about before you leave to go do your radio story is a thread. How is this piece going to be organized to pull me through it? And a really common way to do it is a day in the life sort of approach. Um, it isn't, this isn't heavily stated, but yeah, it starts in the morning with him cooking 
breakfast and getting ready for school. Um, another thread might be something that's geographical, someone moving, which is also chronological too, right? But they're moving from one place to another, that sort of thing. So you want to look for a thread or think about what a thread might be. The rabbit piece. They hunt them, they cook them, they eat them, they, I don't know <laughs> what the next part would be, but they wear them, sure, okay. Um, maybe we go shopping with them elsewhere, maybe they do other hunting, you know, I don't know where else the, the, that thread might go, but that's a thread, and you would think about that sort of thing before you leave, all right? You might discover other threads, and that, that doesn't go in the direction you went in, but you'd think about it so you know where you need to be, and just a quick caveat too, you want to tell people who you're going to be doing the stories on that you're going to be doing this. They need to know this up front. And so when you start have that first initial conversation, which we'll talk about shortly, uh, like, and discuss what sorts of things to say, one of the things you're going to say is, these are all the things I'm going to need to do. I'm going to be very annoying to you. you I wouldn't say that. But I'm going to want to be with you as you hunt, as you prep, as you cook, as you, no, 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 next step, whatever it is. So yeah, there's a thread. What's the big idea, though, in the Tourette's piece? Go. Well, I really felt like the idea they were introducing that Josh was kooky or goofy because the two scenes were eating spaghetti bolognese for breakfast and then making prank phone calls. Like, there's some kind of sense of humor that fits into his personality. Yeah. It, it's that he, I think also that he's, he's, you're starting to learn what types of uh, problems he might have based on his Tourette that might impact on his social, on his social life. Yeah. I think it's Good. The, for me the big idea is what's it like to be a teenager with Tourette's and how does the world see you and how do you see yourself and how do you cope with that? But he, I felt like there wasn't a lot of like teenage, but to me the focus was more like I don't want people to feel sorry for me. Like that seemed to be the like the Mori Povich thing and the fact that he like makes prank calls. He's like, I don't know, that whole thing of being active and not a victim. Yeah, a victim. That seemed to be like his particular emphasis in, in this part. I don't know. I think it's a combination of things. Cause there's, I mean, I do think it's about how the world sees him and how he sees himself and how he's coping yeah. with it. Yeah. So, because it, it touches on all these different. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> also, there were very typical teenage things. Wait till I back to his mom. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. True. Calling to get a fat on the, on the show. Mm -hmm. yeah. I thought there were very typical teenage moments, too. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't just. And prank calls as teenage. Great. So, when I think of this, I personally I think of it as one scene, and one scene can have two settings. Think, about, think of it as a chapter in a book. You're reading along in the book, there's a setting, there's some characters, there's some action, and then the action ends and then there's space, right? There's some blank space to show that something has changed and you're moving on to another thing, but it's still the same chapter, right? I'm hopefully I'm not confusing you guys. So you can think of scenes in that way, is that a scene can communicate one big idea, but it can have two locations, could have multiple characters, different types of action, but it's all sort of encapsulated, one big idea, and for me, the big idea is introduction to main character, Josh, who has a complication, Tourette's, and um, he's a teenager. Those are the th really the big things. There's some allusions to other small things, definitely, that they tend to explore later on in the piece, which we're going to hear. But it's introduction of the character, there's action, there's a beginning of a thread. Those are actually the pretty common things that happen in the beginning of any piece. And we'll listen to a beginning of, uh, of a piece by Dave Isay pretty soon to talk about that. Those are the kinds of things you're going to want for tape 
So if that's the type of stuff that starts a story, a kind of introduction of a main character, the beginning of a thread, um, their complication, I'm going to go hunting for that kind of tape. I want to get tape that is going to help me to start a story. Once again, it's that fine line process. You don't know how your story is going to necessarily start until you collect all the tape and figure it out. But as a to-do list, I want to get some tape that I think might be a possible beginning for my story. And I saw a hand. Yeah. I, just, I was just wondering the different sort of, because what, what these guys were talking about, and I agree with what you were sort of saying, sort of more of the idea, I think, getting into what the whole piece is going to be about is the sort of like, what is it like for this kid with Tourette's to live in the world and vice versa? Yeah. And and what you were just talking about is sort of the idea more narrowly for that exact scene. And so I guess my question is sort of like, do we call both the idea that they're sort of the overarching thesis of the whole piece, which is I think what you guys were talking about, you know, versus this sort of looking at each scene as having both a unique idea that it's introducing the character, but it's adding to that larger idea of telling the story of this kid. Yeah, and I think the answer is yes. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a statement. I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. Can you make a focus sentence already? Can you? Welcome to Salt. No, can you do it? Teacher turned Josh, a terrific teenager. So far, I don't know what he's going to do, but you know, confronts life as a oh no, Josh. Uh, confronts life as a teenager in, in New York. Sure. Yeah. Where's the because in that? Because he has to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Deal with it. Yeah. Well, you don't stop living because you have Tourette's. Right. Yeah. I think that's good. But we don't know how badly he's got it yet. Right? Yeah, we, we only heard a couple of verbal. We heard a couple. Right. Yeah. But, and he, but we, don't, we don't know if he has a really bad tick. We don't know if he has coprolea. We don't know if he curses or not. Let's find out. Here comes, what, yeah, where's the next scene go? School. Him out in the world. School. Have you guys heard this piece before? Oh, yeah. Have you? Who said, oh, yeah, yeah? We do the same exercise in my classroom. Where? At, at Apple Shop with the same piece. Really? Yeah, I'm having deja vu. Oh, no. That's great. great. Yeah. Okay, you can't answer any more questions. <laughs> Uh, scene two or three, depending on. I go to St. Anne's School. It's in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm in 11th grade. I've been going there since I was in first grade. What are you doing? Are you I'm doing a project on Tourette's for National Public Radio. Are you serious? Mm -hmm. Can I like sing on this? <laughs> okay, sing. Uh, I love fishes because they're so okay, delicious. Okay. I love that. I was really scared to bring the tape recorder into school. I just assumed that they would just look at me as like some loser with bringing a microphone into school. But as it turned out, they all jumped at the chance to be on the radio. I had to ward people off. What do you think about Tourette's? If somebody says Tourette's to you, what's the first thing that pops into your head? What do you want me to say? Anything like, you want. Like what I've learned from you? Yeah. Okay, well, uh, I see that you have uncontrollable outbursts and, yeah. uh, well, sometimes they're funny, amusing, but most of the time they're just a uh, pain in the ass, you know, because you got to put up with you cursing and yelling and running That's around. Really nice. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, just, just say what you think. But, you know, uh, you know you're a nice guy, and uh, so, uh, you know, I've uh, learned that from you. Do you think it affects my relationships with other people? You don't want to do it? Yes. You do? Huh. 
what I've heard about it is you say whatever you think. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone thinks things which they wouldn't normally say. And for example, if I said exactly what I thought about Sophie, she'd hit me. So. I do say exactly what I think about Sophie. Josh loves Sophie. No, no, just my honey bunch. Girls are a very touchy topic with me. Not physically, but I wish. <laughs> um, I don't know, it's because I must say, not to gloat, but I am an attractive person. I'm cute, I am smart, I have a nice body, but a lot of the Tourette things I do seem to drive other people, including girls, away. Thanks. Sophie, you want to sing something else? Okay, she wants to Ooh. sing. I love fish because it's so delicious. I love fish because it's so delicious. Go and go fishing. Yay. Sophie. Wasn't that wonderful? Okay. Thanks. Let's see how this came out. Okay, end of scene two. Who are the characters? Sophie. Sophie, yeah, yeah. And Pepperidge Farm. What's that? His classmates. Classmates and Josh. Location. School. School. Action. Hanging out. Hanging. Yeah. Yeah. Big idea. Tourette's complicates the relationship with women. Right. Uh, with women. Yeah. Yeah. And peers in general. Yeah. Yeah. So another way to think now is, all right, who are the characters I need to put in my piece? Now, I know this is a teen diary and the kid's been given the tape deck and he goes out and collects all this. But if you're producing the piece, you're going to want to ask yourself, all right, who are the characters I need to talk to in this story? So we've got Josh, duh, I'd talk to him, right? But who else would I talk to? Josh's friends I'd want to talk to, right? Who else would you want to talk to? Parents. Parents? What's that? Yeah, teachers, like other people he encounters. Yeah. Oh, teachers, great. Mm -hmm. If he has siblings. Good. Brothers and sisters. Yeah. Doctor. Doctor. His personal doctor? Yeah. Yep. Sometimes people might say, get a random doctor who has expertise in this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I would do that. I would go and do research and do informational interviews with people on tape. So I would go to a doctor who has perhaps some expertise in Tourette syndrome so I can come to understand it. I might decide to use that tape later, but in a really intimate portrait piece like this, uh, personally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go there. People with ties and lab coats, I don't like putting them into stories necessarily if the piece is really intimate. It's just, I don't know, I don't like it. But I still would go and talk to someone so I'm informed about it. It'd be part of my research, which we'll talk about shortly too. Um, the doctor's a good one though. Doctor's a good one. Anyone else? Yeah? It could be interesting to see if there is some sort of like community that he was part of to, to cope with. A support group or something? Well, I don't know yeah. Do they have a TSA? Do they have a Tourette Syndrome Association? Is that right? It would be interesting yeah. to see if he had relationships with other kids. Yeah. Great. I'm always interested in seeing like what people um, think about like movies where they're represented. I don't. I mean, I don't know. But but uh, for example, like we work with teenagers, and that some of them are like into gang stuff, and we played like Grand Theft San Andreas, and we're just sort of like, what do you think of this? Like, this is your life, but like in a weird sort of glamorized way and I don't know just something I wondered although so many movies and TV shows and everything feature Tourette syndrome and I just wonder what he would think of that. I don't know why they didn't address that earlier let him respond a little bit more he only talked about the the talk show host saying that the kids were attractive right. they didn't talk about 
his response to how the kids were portrayed with Tourette's. Yeah. On, they were Tourette kids on the talk show, oh, right? Yeah. yeah. So they did, I, maybe they have this take sort of story for later. Maybe his response to that. They don't. Except, and he's confusing here because the they is he in a way also. It's the story that he, he wants to tell. Yeah. Right. Well, I was just saying his response, she was just getting into this idea of his response to the way that other, uh, uh, you know, to what there are other people with that syndrome are portrayed. Yeah. Well, he does say that the talk show host kind of is very patronizing. Yeah. yeah. And I'm citing that. that but other than, other than yeah. the fact that talk show hosts are patronizing, how does that tell you about Tourette? And using, but using the image of a talk show host that's yeah. so loaded, you get right. all those associations. Yeah, it's probably not too necessary in this story to do more, but in general with stories that of groups that are, I mean, just when you said 100,000, I just was like, what? There, I mean, how do we all know about it then? I mean, there it's must be- It's more than that. I oh, think that's really? wrong. Oh. Okay. I think it's wrong, actually. Yeah. I don't know where they got that. Yeah. So those brain, that brainstorming of other people that you would talk to gives you a to-do list, and you can place those people in settings. So let's say there's a support group. Guess what? We've got a scene. We've got a location, there's action, there's people working stuff out in a group. Josh is in there. You can have other people talking about how they manage this. That isn't an actual scene in this, but it could possibly be. This is the type of thing I'm talking about in terms of brainstorming how to tell a story before you leave, before you go out. I really think you gotta plan this stuff out. I really do think you have to plan it out. Um, where the story, I'm going to fast forward for time purposes so we can get on to other things. Where the story goes is after school he comes home. Okay, so there's that thread that's continuing through this, the day in the life-ish. Even though this was recorded over several months, you know, Joe Richmond, you know, has produced a composite day. He comes home and he has, he's been holding in his ticks all day long because certainly he doesn't want to have an episode at school, right? And he just, he just explodes on tape. It's unbelievable. Right? You should go listen to it sometime. Um, and then he also makes another prank phone call because that's what kids do when they get home from school. Um, and then mom shows up. Perhaps she's come home from work or something. They don't really say that. But it makes sense for him to encounter mom at some point. And they have this wonderful conversation, uh, a mother-son conversation at a kitchen table. And then he kind of sums things up late at night. He's in bed. He looks at his tape deck. He sees that the battery light is on, the low battery light, and that sort of thing. And the piece ends like that. So the thread is complete from morning to end. Um, he has his, his a sequence of actions. He gets ready for school. He goes to school. He comes back. He has his ticks let out. He has a fight with his mother, which I guess is an action. We're sympathetic to him because I like him. He's an all right kid. And he, he doesn't necessarily resolve. He resolves it for himself. He resolves this by saying, I am not a Sally Struthers commercial. It comes back to this whole perception thing. And he says, don't think about me as a, you know, a person with a difficulty. I'm just a dude with Tourette's and that sort of thing. And that's how it ends up. Anyway, you need to be thinking about all those things before you go out and just plan it out and use this form and just fill in the blanks in pencil, you know, and go find that stuff. Go find that stuff. So when you, let's see, we talked about who the characters are. One person says, a friend of mine says, who has a dog in this fight? I kind of like that. Uh, analogy, although it suggests that the story is an argument, but nevertheless, I, I just like that, that symbolism. Ah, one thing to think about when you're going to produce your piece is that you're casting your piece. So let's say you're looking to do a story on rural poverty. So you're at that level of thinking in terms of story idea. It might lead you then to the rabbit hunters. 
And so you may go to, so you're doing a story on rural poverty in Florida, and you may do some exploration and to find out how people are living in poverty in Florida. You may go and hang out with several different people and decide to focus on the rabbit hunters because it does all of that for us, right? And so you're deciding who to cast in your piece. I know it makes it sound Hollywood-esque, but it's just a way to go put it. The rabbit piece. How did he come up with the story idea? How did he cast it? What was his initial idea? You know, he said, "I want to do a story about." He, he saw a photo essay of this kid. Yeah, or kids doing this. Apparently, it's there's a bunch of kids who do this. People do this. It's a thing. It's been going on for a while, and it's a way for people just to augment their diet, I guess. This happens in Maine, not the, not the rabbits or the sugarcane fields, but people, people hunt in Maine not for the sport of it, although that's part of it, but, you know, kill a deer, put it in the freezer, you've got meat for quite some time, and it helps because you've got all the other bills to pay. What are the numbers? Is it a third of children in the United States go hungry at night or something like that? Some substantial number of people go hungry at night. It'll blow your mind, whatever the number is. Yeah. So. I'm interested. I don't know if you want to talk about this. How he decided on the length because of that story and not to carry it through. The rabbit piece? Yeah, because I don't think it's a loss, but it's interesting that that decision. I don't know. I, that, I don't know that part. I don't know what the editors at NPR said. That aired on NPR. What kind of tape do you collect when you do a story? What are the, like, what are the big interview tape? What other kinds of tape do you collect when you do a story? Ambient, ambient sound. How do you define ambient sound? What do you mean by that? Yeah. Good. All right. What else tape? What other type of tape? Archival or tape that your subjects own already. Nice. Great. Good idea. Archival tape. Tape that your subjects own. What else? Maybe music. 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 Meaning pre-recorded music off of a CD? Well, yeah. Anything else? What other kind of tape? Where do you do the interview? Hopefully a quiet place, right? Where they would feel comfortable. And if you were here earlier, maybe it's on a couch and you're sitting sideways with them, but I don't know about that. Um, but yeah, a quiet place. So that stuff that we heard Josh talking about where he was saying, I can't remember what he says, but there's a scene, oh, I know. So there's a scene where we're in the high school and they're talking and they're yakking and, and then the, the sound goes down underneath and he says, I have trouble with women or something like that. The trouble with women tape was recorded in a quiet space, perhaps his bedroom, perhaps a quiet room at the house and it was just put over the top of the sounds from the school. All right. I wanna listen to, have us listen to the first two minutes of a piece by Dave Isay, um, the guy behind Sound uh, StoryCorps and Sound Portraits. And this is um, a story about a dude who has the world's longest diary. We need to be precise here because the man you're about to meet. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is that when the story actually starts, what are the tape elements? Listen for the tape elements. Is very, very precise. His name is Robert William Shields. He lives in Dayton, Washington. And when this story was recorded on October 31st, 1993, his diary contained exactly 34,263,395 words. He's still adding to the total. 
Robert Shields has been keeping this diary, carefully noting everything he does, everything he says, everything he sees, everything he eats, everything he dreams, for more than two decades. For no less than four hours each day, Reverend Robert Shields of Dayton, Washington, holds himself up in the small office off the back porch of his family's home, turns on his stereo, and types. He is surrounded by a half dozen IBM wheelwriters in case one of them breaks down from overuse. I can do this. Shields spins around in his swivel chair. And get all six typewriters without getting up. <laughs> Robert Shields is 75 years old. He is a short, round man with an impish grin, decked out in his customary writing garb, navy blue thermal underwear and a white t-shirt. Shields was a minister and high school English teacher in this picturesque Washington town before devoting himself to his journal. My diary is complete. Shields is certainly not exaggerating. Over the past 20 years, he has typed between three and 6,000 words each day, keeping a record of everything that happens to him. The entire day is accounted for. I, I don't leave anything out. I start it in at midnight and go through the next midnight, and every five minutes is, is accounted for. 1220 to 1225, I strip to my thermals. I always do that. 12.25 to 12.30, I discharge urine. 12.30 to 12.50, I ate leftover salmon, Alaska red salmon by Bumblebee, about seven ounces, drank 10 ounces of orange juice while I read the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations. Robert Shields types his diary in two perfect columns down sheets of 11 by 14 inch paper, which he eventually binds into ledgers and stores in huge cartons, 75 of which are stacked to the ceiling just outside of his office. It's a, an uninhibited diary. It's, it's a tell-all, show-all. It's spontaneous. Uh, I, I type it as it comes, and I don't correct it, and I don't edit it. Do you read it? No. What are the tape elements there? What are the different components? The music. Narrator. Where'd the music come from? It's probably a recording of what he normally listens to. So there's a question of whether it was recorded on site or then dropped in. If it was, it wasn't while he was typing. Correct. So if you go into a situation and someone has the radio on or music or CD or a record or whatever, records, um, I'm old school. You would ask them to turn that stuff off and then you would record it later. And you might have to explain that to them because they're going to go, what are you talking about? So, so the music is one element. What other? It sounds there? almost like 40s or 50s, 40s like newsreel back, back up. Yeah, who knows what it is. Yeah. yeah, and so chances are, I, I'm going to guess that it's a, just a cheap stereo with a cheap speaker and that um, Reverend Shields types and listens to this cheap music coming out of this cheap speaker and that sort of thing. But Dave had to record that separate, separately. All right, so then there was narration we heard. What else? So we have music, narration, what other elements? Typewriter. Chair. <laughs> yeah, the chair. Uh, his voice, right? Did I hear somebody say that? Yep. So that's the interview tape. Him reading. He swiveled in the chair. Yeah. Okay. So 
those are the recording elements you're going to need to think about. You're going to make a list of the stuff you're going to want to record. Okay, this is a guy who does a diary. So in my head, I'm going to think, all right, where does he do the diary work? I want to go see that place. I want to be with him while he's making his diary. Um, if he was writing, I'd be with him while he was writing. It's less sonic, right? Less radiophonic, if you will. But I'd get the mic like right there so you could hear while he was writing into, the, writing into the diary. I would make this list of all the sonic elements that I think I might encounter and go and get them. And of course, be ready for what is actually there. But I would make a list of that, so I'd think that stuff out. I have a really quick story for you. So I was doing this series of pieces for the Maine Arts Commission um, a long time ago, and it was about Maine artists. And so we would go, and I would just spend like a half hour with people. So for instance, one day it was a juggler. I'd do interview tape, and then I'd have them juggle, right? And here's another type of tape that I get, right? So the, the juggling part is, I, this is good, I'm glad I brought this up. The juggling part is known as active tape. So you want active tape. Reverend Shields typing and doing his work is active tape. You want people doing stuff, all right? Um, so I would interview the juggler, and then I'd have him juggle. In an ideal world, if I was doing a documentary on the juggler, I, would, I wouldn't have him do anything. I would be there while he does stuff, but I wouldn't have him do anything. Anyway, for this thing for the Main Arts Commission, I did an interview, had him juggle. And another thing that I do, too, is that I do a little bit of interviewing while the person is doing something. So it's active tape with interview. 90% of the time, what you'll want to do is interview tape in quiet space, and you'll want to collect active tape but every now and then, I'll pepper someone with a couple of questions. What are you doing right now? What's happening? And then they'll give you an answer so that you can weave in interview tape, active tape, active tape, and interview, right, when they're answering those questions. And so you have like three elements to put in there. Oh, and then narration, I guess, would be the fourth element. So back to the juggler. Interview tape, juggling. I mean, that's really what it all sounds like, right? Um, and then I would ask him a couple of questions while he's juggling, so I'd have a third kind of tape, right? So we finished the juggler, and uh, I didn't do any planning. I just, just just walk right in, and it was just do it, okay? I mean, Abby, a woman I was working with, say, all right, we're going to go talk to a juggler. And Im immediately in my head, all right, I'll interview him in a quiet space. I'll get him juggling, and I'll ask him some questions while he's juggling. I don't know what else to do, but that's what we'll do for starters, right? So I popped all in my head. So we finished with the juggler. We're driving down the road. We're heading to the next guy. And I said, Abby, who are we going to see next? And she says, Tony Montanero. And I said, oh, what's, who's Tony Montanero? And she says, well, he's a vaudevillian actor. Okay, what do you mean, a vaudevillian actor? And she goes, well, he's a mime. <laughs> True story. And she's at the wheel, and I go, he's what? <laughs> and she said, he's a mime. And I said, that is the oldest joke in radio. <laughs> Don't you know that, interviewing a mime? So I start to sweat, you know, because <laughs> I should have planned. I should have planned this. Instead, I was winging it, which was dumb. And I'm like, what the, what the heck am I supposed to do with a mime, right? Um, <laughs> how do I get interview tape? Active tape? What's the sound of that? Active tape with questions? I mean, what, you know, what, what is that? So anyway, I figured, all right, I'll just have to have him describe what he does on stage in really great fashion so that I have active tape, but it's him describing things. And eh, that didn't do any good. I had him introduce himself. So Tony, if you were on stage, what, what would you say? How do you get on stage? 
like, and he didn't know what I meant by that. Well, you have an audience. You're up on the stage, right? You put people in a place. You try to place them in something while you're interviewing them. And you say, so you're looking out at the audience. What's, what are you saying to them? What's the first thing you say? And he said, oh, well, hi, welcome. My name is Tony Montan. And so I have my intro, right? I got that. I was like, yay. And then eventually, cutting a long story short, he eventually told me they had a videotape of a performance. I said, really? And so I recorded TV. It was cheesy. I should have gone to an actual performance, but he wasn't having any more because he had stomach cancer and he was really sick and just, yeah, it was awful. Um, but uh, anyway, plan so that in the event that you have to interview a mime, you know what you're going to do, all right? There's actually a lot of sound. There's the floorboards creaking as they're, I don't know, moving against the wind or whatever it is they do. Um, the audience laughing. There's actually quite a bit of sound, so it's not as silent as you might think it is. So those are the different types of tape elements you're going to want. You're going to need to plan those. And here's the other scoop is you may need to tell people these are the sorts of things I'm going to need to do. Am I, I'm going to need to turn off your radio. I wouldn't tell them that sort of thing necessarily. But just like I said for the rabbit piece, I'm going to need to be there while the place is on fire and you're whacking rabbits. And I'm going to need to record that. All right? And I'm going to need to maybe get in your way and get the sound right there. I would tell people what the needs are and bring them into the loop so that they you know, are working with you as opposed to wondering what the heck it is you're doing. Um, how much research should you do before you go into a piece? As much as you can. As much as you can. Yeah. What else? Any other thoughts on that? Everyone does as much as they can. I mean, I don't know if you feel like it's it's a point interesting. Where what, I'm sorry? It's like I get to a point where it's like I have all the information. Like, yeah. That there's something else I can but you don't yep. want to do so much research that you're an expert, so that you feel like, oh, well, you don't really need to talk to the juggler because like, you know all about juggling. So I guess there's, there's some sense where you want to be knowledgeable so you can tell the story correctly, but you don't want to be overly knowledgeable because you still want to feel like connected to your audience who doesn't know. Good. I found sometimes it helps with probing. They might say a, a term that's very esoteric to whatever they're doing. Yep. And if you have a little bit of knowledge, you can explore that and probe that. Yeah. I would say though that you can be you can have you can know everything and still ask questions. It's all in your attitude as a narrator, as an interviewer. If you go you can know nothing and still act like you know everything. <laughs> Are you saying that there's a performance involved when you do interviewing? Yeah, but there's a performance element, I think, with, with interviewing. I hate to say it. Um, I, this is where I fall on the line. Some people say, do as much as you can. Great. So if, if nothing else, then you know when someone's not pulling the wool over your eyes because you're knowledgeable about the subject. That's a good thing to know when someone's, you know, telling you a, a line, giving you a line. Um, on the other hand, some people say, don't do any research. Just walk into the situation so that you're wide open and experiencing the moment. I kind of like the halfway in between. It works for me. So I know some stuff. Um, I have some idea of the subject matter and who this person is, but I can also be in the moment. And I don't necessarily have to act, although I do act sometimes, act dumb, um, act really surprised, but I actually really want to be there. This part of me, this heart right here, wants to be there in the room with the person. And I think 
that helps with the interview. So um, I do some research, unless it's a mime. Um, I do some research, um, but allow myself to be in the moment as well and to be surprised and you know be really there. So whatever works for you. Yep. There's a really interesting moment at the teeth of Mike's session yeah. yesterday. I, I, I never met Cornell, clearly. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know, you know, just he was some academic writing about people like me. And the, uh, the discussion was that because she didn't really know anything about him, her piece was incredibly revealing. So it was an interesting and so in that particular case, it sounds like they used the student, the young person, the producer, as a way into the story. But it was she became a way into the story. So her personal story became a foil for us to understand Cornell a little bit. Yeah. Or not even Cornell, but the experience of people who looked at his writing. Yeah. Yeah. And um, as a, I was an adult that worked with her on the piece. And I think it's kind of interesting when you go in with one person who knows say a lot and one person who doesn't know as much about the subject because I just found it really interesting to be able to kind of compare notes. Well, I mean, I know you can't always do that and go out with two people, that, but it's interesting to me to sort of see how something looks from the perspective of someone who's read all this and knows who he is, or, you know, and then someone who it's new to, because oftentimes it's the opposite situation, like I'll be going with LaCoya to a you know, super hyphy 13 or whatever the concert is, and I won't know anything, and I'll think all these things are weird, you know, and, and she won't think they're weird at all, and then she's like, oh, that's interesting that you think it's weird, so it's, it's really nice to have that give and take. It's like everyone, one of us is a foreigner, like in, in each situation. But she said that they asked her about that about her piece, and she even said that if she would have known who yeah, was, she yeah. would have performed differently. Which was an interesting oh, choice for me because I feel like I could have yeah. been like, okay, read five of his essays, and here's the video of him at Harvard, and and instead it was just sort of like, this is basically who he is. This is what he writes about, and and you know. It was and a, go. Yeah. Yeah. There's something to be said for not planning as much as I'm suggesting here. There's something to be said for just seeing something and moving toward it and making it happen. And I, I encourage that. But I also know that generally speaking, people who are doing this new for the first time, that's too much. The corral there is too big. And you can get lost a lot. So I'm also into corral. At some, it's that magic thing that I don't know how to find the middle ground, but finding that middle ground of planning and, and um, I was going to look for a 50 cent word, but chance, having chance occur. How about interview questions? Do you guys write down your interview questions beforehand? That's a confusing thing, too. How do you figure? How's it confusing? Um, I have the job of taking 10 or 11 artists and condensing their working method for students. And mm. so some of them will write interview questions. Some of them won't even bring interview questions. The students won't? But no, the, the artists who teach them. And so helping the students figure out what they want to do yeah. So we, we, make, we make them do interview questions, but then tell them to have a conversation. Good. Okay. But, but they've planned out the interview questions beforehand. And, and yep. they've even written their follow-up questions down, huh. like potential follow-up questions. Good. And I always wonder, is that too much? Might be. Might be. And I have a possible solution for you. Um, do you guys hand over your questions? That's not the solution. Do you guys hand over your questions? No. Oh, I had a journalism professor that like, was like, don't ever hand over your questions. Yeah, why but not? But then in some situations it seems to be, um, 
at least because we work with teenagers, so sometimes the adult is not used to being interviewed from the perspective of the teenager, and so that the adult, like whoever, you know, the Mars rover guy or something, doesn't get totally thrown off, it, it seems like it might have been helpful if he knew kind of where they were going with it. Yeah. I don't know, I'm pretty torn on that sometimes. Adults need to be thrown off sometimes. Yeah, I guess so. Big time. Right. But it seemed to sort of stick the interview in a place that, I don't know. Yeah. The general practice is to not hand over your questions. If for no other reason, then um, they will come up with rote answers. They'll have thought about them so much that you're not really in the moment with them. Someone yesterday said that they had handed over questions and the person that they were interviewing had written out the answers. And they'll give you the sheet back and they'll say, here, here's all your information. Yeah, yeah. dude, it's radio, I need you to say yeah. it, yeah. Um, yeah, so, and then it doesn't allow you to be in the moment with the person. You know, they know what's coming and you can't surprise them. I don't mean trick them, I mean like surprise them. But the flip side of the coin also is you don't know where they're gonna take you. If yeah. You, if, what I mean is if you have a template and you're gonna stick to that template, then, then, the, then the interviewee can't yep. go where they wanna go sometimes. Exactly. And sometimes they come to the table needing to tell you stuff. Have you had that, the radiotherapy moments, you know, where they've got stuff they need to tell you? Just gotta get through that and let that happen. Um, so here's what I do for prepping. I do some research, not a boatload, but a small canoe load maybe. And I will type out my questions and I will fold them up and put them in my pocket. Maybe this will help the kids you work with. And I drive or go or bike or whatever to the interview and I sit outside for a second and I pull out the questions and I look at them and I refresh my memory as to what I want to ask and then I fold them back up and put them in my pocket and then go into the interview and then have a conversation with them. And that might help the teens because I've found that people doing this for the first time, especially young people, and I've worked with a lot of young people, um, they're out of their mind nervous, right? And that set of questions becomes a safety net for them. And so they stick to the questions. So. Dude they're interviewing says, yes, and that's when I shot the mayor, and they, they don't listen to it. They're on to the next question, you know, and so they've missed the boat. <laughs> yeah, and so, um, so having it in the pocket, but there, if you need it, I, I think might be a, a nice middle ground, and it works for me, and so I have a conversation, and then when I've run out of questions and follow-up questions and, and that sort of thing, I'll stop and I'll say, you know, I prepped some questions for this. I need to take a look. Can you hold on a second? I pull them out, and it gives them a breather, gives me a little breather, because it's exhausting, right? It's ex interviewing's hard. And then you look at it and you see all the 78 things you meant to ask that you didn't, right? And then you start ask, oh, really? Oh, I meant to ask you this, and you go off with it, and you can just leave it there to that sort of thing. But I don't hand them over, and I don't keep them out in front of me. So hopefully this is, that's useful to you. Um, paperwork. If I'm working on a story, especially one with multiple characters, I've made up a little cheat sheet for myself that has the, I put the name of the project, the person's name, and the date that I contacted them. I have their address, their phone number, their email, and I keep notes on the outcome of conversations. So it's just a tracking sheet, because I can't, I can't retain it all. There's a half hour documentary I'm working on right now on this strange event that happened 100 years ago where a bunch of people were evicted from an island off the coast of Maine because ostensibly because they were black, white, and mixed, mixed race and the town really didn't want them there anymore because they were a blight on the landscape. That's a short story to get your attention. And, um, and, and there's so many people to interview for this. Experts, you know, historians, descendants, um, residents from the town. I can't keep track of it all. And so I must have 
30 to 40 contact people that I'm, you know, have with this. And if I didn't have a contact sheet with that sort of information on it, I'd, I'd be lost. Josh, that story, uh, Josh, you know, uh, but maybe the friends, maybe the teacher, you know, that sort of thing. I would keep a contact sheet and a tracking of, of um, what happens. When I talk to people on the phone, oh yes, this is a good one. So what do you say when you call people up to say, I'm doing a radio story? What's the stuff that you tell them? Briefly describe and don't start interviewing them on the phone if you're going in person. Yeah. Why don't you interview them on the phone? Well, because then you get there and they say, well, I told you that on the phone. <laughs> yeah. Did you not listen? <laughs> Duh. Or, or they say it in such a rogue way, it's not mm -hmm. fresh. It doesn't yeah. sound conversational. It sounds repeating. On the other hand, if you agree with the concept that you're casting a piece, you need to hear how they answer some questions because if they um, talk like this, hmm, you know, you might not want to cast that person in your piece because they're not radiophonic. Or they may not know the answer to some basic questions. You're like, wait a minute, why am I, I'm not going to show up and interview this person. So um, I think that there's, you have to do, I, I do a little bit. I ask a couple of questions just to make sure they're the right person, that they know some stuff. Um, that they're radiophonic, right, that they talk pretty well, um, but they don't give away the whole store because I still want to be with them and hear answers for the first time. But you have to kind of suss them out a little bit. I heard Daniel's wordling yesterday saying he interviews people on the phone for a really long time and then goes and interviews them and he doesn't seem to have a problem. He just has to work the interview harder to get them back to that place where they haven't felt like they've told you the story before. You know, whatever seems to work. Try them both out and see what works for you. See what happens. What else do you say in that first phone call? You have to inform them that you're be taking if they don't know that yet. Yeah, you tell them it's radio. I've shown up. They're like, where are the cameras? Dude, I said radio. I was working on an audio tour for three years, and I had to I'm, talk about a file sheet of people, contact people, and I would say, I'm working on an audio tour of the Kennebec River. It'll be an 80-minute CD about life, people, and culture on the Kennebec River. You know, I became rote with it. And then I show up, and they're like, where are the cameras? No, audio tour. What part of audio don't you understand? Yeah, you have to, um, <laughs> even though you explain stuff to them on the phone, by the way, when you get there, you have to re-explain that stuff. They won't remember. You know, they're busy whacking rabbits. You've got to tell them again, you know, what this is all for, right? Um, so you're going to ask a question or? No, you're just stretching. You're bored. Um, I tell them what it's for. I tell them who I'm working for. But here's something that you might find useful. I'm thinking about doing a story on. I am interested in this subject matter. There's little weaselly escape clauses because you're talking to this person, and they don't know this, but you're trying to decide whether you're going to cast them in your piece, I wouldn't call them up and say, I want to do a story on you. Well, maybe if it was Cornell West, I might. But um, I wouldn't do that because then as you're talking to them and you find out that they're not the right person, and now you've said you want to do a story on them. So those first moments on the phone and perhaps even in the field, there's a, this is the story I'm working on. I'm not sure I'm going to pursue. I, I leave some things open. Not too open, because then they're going to say, well, why am I going to give you my time? But there's just, you just leave some stuff so that you can pull a parachute cord and get out of there if, if you need to. Yeah, go. I've also had the experience of being an interview subject a couple times, being mm -hmm. called up by PBS and NPR, and they'll call and they'll say, we're doing a story on this, and there's no escape. 
escape clause, and you're like, and that's not the story. Like, and, oh. and so like, so it's been interesting for us. Sometimes our kids will go out and they'll say, we're thinking about this topic, and then the subject will end up flipping the story for them, and it gave the subject space to do that. Especially maybe if the subject doesn't want, like, for example, like going back to the gangster thing, like a lot of parents are ashamed that their kids say might be in gangs. So if you said, like, we're doing a story about gangs, we'd like to interview you about, and they're, I mean, immediately. So sometimes we kind of say something like, we're doing a story about the challenges of the community, and, and then sometimes just initially, and then say, is it okay to talk about gangs? I don't know, because some, some people really have a lot of shame around certain topics, and I mean, you don't want to trick them at all. I mean, you're going to tell them. But the, the thing is, is just sometimes there's these red button issues where there's a lot of, well, if it's a story about that, then, you know, I don't want to be involved in that. I don't know. Yep. This session's called Bring Extra Batteries. I should probably use the word battery in a sentence at some point, right? Um, so I quickly, I don't want to devolve in the last couple minutes here into a tech talk because I don't know if you've ever hung out with tech geeks and audio gear, but it's a vortex sometimes, right? Um, my attitude is keep it simple and inexpensive. I don't need a lot of gear. I just need to make sure it all works and it sounds good. But I want to point out some thinking that I have that I, I want to make sure that I'm ready for any situation, basically, all right? And so instead of talking to you about which mics to necessarily buy, although I will mention that for a moment. I want to talk about some ways to think about your gear so that you're ready for stuff. I always bring more than one microphone. I do recommend this microphone for people who are just starting out and it's about 175 bucks or something. And it's an Electrovoice RE50 and you can pound nails with it. Really, you can. Electrovoice RE50. Next time you watch a, a, a TV news reporter in a hurricane, right? They're out there in the wind and stuff. They're going to have one of these mics, and it's going to be like right here because they're using their body as a baffle. But this is a really standard reporter's mic. And it's especially good for people who are just starting out because it can handle wind noise really well, and it can handle mic handling noise. And people who are just starting out are kind of clumsy with the microphone, which is totally fine. You're supposed to be. Um, but this mic can help you know, a little bit with that. Usually, though, I use this shotgun mic. All right, it doesn't like the wind, and it doesn't like mic handling noise, and I don't necessarily recommend it for people starting out, but it's a really inexpensive mic, Audio-Technica 835B, um, and it just sounds good. And one advantage to using this is when you use the other mic, the RE50, you have to get it into what I call lollipop you know, location, like our ice cream cone location, like right here when you're talking to people, because it, need, it needs to be there to sound good. With the shotgun mic, that's not necessarily the case. I can hold it out here, and so I'm not invading their space as much. Have you used a windsock that you like for that? A windsock for this? Are you talking about like a big fluffy dead cat thing? Not so big. No. Um, yeah. coat makes them, right? What's that? Yeah, the wind. It hates the wind. So I, whenever I'm outside and I use this shotgun mic, I put it in a, in a, in a windsock that people literally call a dead cat. I swear to God, I'm not making that up. Um, and it's in a Zeppelin, right? So it's a big honking windscreen. It looks like you know, a Led Zeppelin album cover. And it's got a pistol grip on it. And it's big and furry. And if you're hanging out with construction workers, you get a lot of comments on that thing. But you just have to endure it and move through it. Um, but on the street, I'll just walk up to people. And it's... 
I wish I had it with me. I didn't bring it with me, but it's big and fluffy, and I'm holding it out, and it's kind of like this, and it's big and fluffy, and I'm just talking to people, and I'm just looking at it. And then at first, it gets attention, but then it disappears. But it keeps the wind off of it. Rycote is typically the company that people gravitate towards. How do you spell that? R-Y-C-O-T-E. Do you use a grip with your shotgun? I don't, but it, there are people I know who put a bicycle pad grippy thingy on there that they feel like it helps. Local bike shop. I always bring extra batteries. There we go, I got the title of this thing in here. I bring two mini disc recorders in case one you know, goes belly up. You're gonna say to yourself, I don't have the money for two mini disc recorders. That's okay, all right? I acquired this stuff over time. You know, it was just... seem to not be selling them anymore. Well, yeah, and then there's the whole flash recording yeah. situation, yep. Yeah. Can we talk about that afterwards? Do you mind? Yeah. I have a Leatherman. Um, it's just like it's got. It's like a Swiss Army knife. Have I ever used it? No, no. But I have it. <laughs> but it's there. I have electrical tape. Battery tester. That actually I find really important. Leatherman. You don't need a Leatherman, but battery tester. That's pretty helpful. Perhaps the most important. Two most important things I bring with me, extra mic cables. It's worth spending another $15 to get a mic cable, to have two of them in case one of them busts, really. Extra batteries and mic cables, you're good to go. And I always have a pad of paper. See, I always have, a, I know it's geek, I need a pocket protector. But um, I always have a pad of paper and a pen. One of the things you'll wanna do when you're done with an interview is go back to your car or wherever and take color notes and jot down stuff that you saw that didn't get on tape. By the way, you can take color notes on tape. So if you're in Reverend Shields' porch and uh, you have a minute, you can say, okay, there's 75 boxes. I think that's what he said, right? 75 boxes of diaries. There's a cheap stereo speaker. Um, it smells of this, that, and the next thing. It looks like this, it's, you know, whatever. You can take color notes onto your tape and so you have them later. But usually I'll take them on a piece of paper. I'll leave. So I'm not sitting in their driveway and they're looking out the window going, why hasn't he left yet? I'll leave and I'll go take my color notes and write down impressions that didn't get on tape so I don't lose them because I have a head like a hole. What do you like for ears? Uh, headphones. I prefer my own ears, but for headphones, I um, Sony 7506, is that the number? Yep, 7506, MDR7506 is a standard. They're $100. I think there's a $75 version where the earpiece is a little smaller. But the great thing about these, um, is that it isolates the sound that's around me. So they're almost like ear baffles, and all I hear then is the recording tape. A lot of cheap you know, headphones won't block out the sound, and so you're hearing other stuff. Although that's good too. Sometimes I will wear my headphones like this and really look like a freak with the big fluffy thing and stuff. Um, but then I'm focusing, I can hear in one ear, which is my good ear, the recording, and I can listen for other stuff that's going around me so that I can go, oh, wait a minute, there's the story, you know, and move, and move that way. Um, so that's the gear that I bring. Extra batteries and extra mic cables are really useful. I also have a stereo microphone, right, picks up sound in two directions, and then that's it. Oh, and a bunch of minutes. What's the stereo mic? Oh, sorry. Uh, Audio-Technica 8. It's, it's inexpensive. Oh, look at this. It looks funny. <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, 822. Yeah, there's two capsules inside here, and they pick up, you know, sound in, in two different directions. I don't use a stereo mic for interviews. 
Sometimes the mini disc recorders come with a little plastic stereo mic that sounds pretty decent. Um, but I don't use it for interviews because um, it's picking up sound that's going past the actual person. So it's picking up more of the room tones. I don't necessarily want that. I use, a, I use the shotgun mic on purpose. Go. I do bring this little fold-up mic stand with me just in case. I rarely use it, but, you know, there have been times, yeah. Yep, definitely. Pardon me? Yeah, Audio-Technica AT822. You know, you talk to people about which mics to get, and boy, you could have a whole day-long session about that. People are pretty freaky with the mics. For me, if it sounds good, it is good. I, I want to make sure it sounds good, but I don't think I need to spend $1,000 on a mic. Will it sound a whole lot better if I spend $1,000 on it? Yep, mm-hmm, but I don't have $1,000, and it sounds, it's good enough for radio. It sounds good enough for me. Don't tell anyone I just said that. So. Plus, when you drop it in the river. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, I want to play one last piece for you. I think I've covered most everything. Oh, as I'm putting this in here, usually if you're thinking about working on a story, you need to pitch it somewhere first. It's rare when a radio program or a radio station will take a piece already produced. So it's generally a good idea to pitch the story first to an editor so that you're working with someone in advance. That said, go make radio and put it on PRX. And PRX is here, and they can explain to you about what PRX is. So you don't have to wait for a radio station um, or an editor. Although working with an editor is a really good idea. But generally speaking, just so you know, you need to pitch the story beforehand. I know we're running over. OK, let me play this one last piece. And I want to reiterate with it something that I said at the beginning. All the planning in the world is, is a good idea, but you can miss stuff if you over plan. So try to find that tightrope for yourself. I went to Newfoundland for a summer, or for a couple weeks one summer, and brought my tape deck with me. And I didn't know what I was gonna find, but I brought my tape deck with me, because you just don't know. And I'm ending up in, I ended up in the most northern point of Newfoundland. This is my Newfoundland map. This is the northern peninsula. Next stop is Labrador. And there's icebergs all around. I was like, dude, there's icebergs, and I have a kayak. Let's go. And so I had no idea I was going to be doing a radio story that would end up on NPR, an audio postcard about kayaking around icebergs. I'm heading straight for a couple of icebergs. They look like the peaks on the Grand Teton. Sharp, jagged edges. All of the icebergs are, you know, certainly they're white, but they're really tinged with blue. There's nothing predictable about the icebergs. So at several wharfs that I've been at, I, I stop and talk to fishermen. I say, I'm going out kayaking, and uh, how, how close to the iceberg should I get? They just kind of shake their head, no. And then they explain that it's very dangerous to get too close to the icebergs because at any time, a piece of it could lop off and create a big wave. And then sometimes they, I heard someone say they turtle they flip-flop in the water. So I approach these with, uh, with caution. On the iceberg, there's overhangs. You can hear the water that laps underneath the ice.
wind is blowing me toward the iceberg. Not something I want to have happen. So I'm kind of coming around the back side. I'm away from the wind, which is kind of nice. Hey, there's a little piece of iceberg. It's a little ice cube. What do you think these taste like? Here we go. Mmm, it's good. Not a lick of salt in this, no pun intended. Well, I think I'm going to head in. I have to be one of the more privileged individuals on the planet right this minute. Fresh air, warm sunshine at pretty much the most northern point in Newfoundland. And I'm surrounded by icebergs. And gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. So that happened by accident, but I knew getting into the kayak what kind of tape I needed. A story starts with action, introduction of main character, sight, scene setting. So I knew as I was paddling out, I needed to describe what I'm seeing. Right? Even though I was just in the moment and I was just talking, I had binaural microphones, by the way, which are clip-on mics that go on a hat, put them on a hat, which left my hands free. I knew I had to, get, had to get that kind of tape. So I ended up with an hour and a half of tape of just me yapping. But in my head, I knew I had to start a thread. I am heading out. And I had to describe things. Um, I knew that perhaps I wanted to you know, bring in some conflict or something like that about not going near them. But I had no idea that the wind was really going to blow me close to them. Um, I didn't know I was going to find an ice cube, but it ended up being conflict, man versus nature, iceberg, kayak, and then resolution. And then I summed things up at the end saying how grateful I am to be at that place. And stories often end up end with a moment of reflection. I knew I kind of needed those elements, and so I said stuff around them so that I would have the tape to tell a story. So it wasn't completely planned, but I knew how stories were told, so I knew the kinds of things that needed to be done. So it's a combination of being in the moment, but also knowing how to tell a story so I knew which kind of tape to get. So, go make great radio stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.